use the load-in door backstage in the theater. I mean, it's much wider, and I'll get to see all the backstage costumes and kit on my way out. No, I've never done that. Why? Well, because the architect of the building, the architect who built that theater, designed that door as the exit to be used in an emergency. And left to our own random opinions, if there were an emergency that were to occur in a theater, we would be left in a sorry state. We would not fare well. Jesus has said some very difficult things that often clash with our opinions or our desires. But he is the architect of the universe and indeed life itself and has told us that some things are set and unchangeable. And so we would do well to listen, to heed, and act on his words. Before we dive into today's text, would you please pray with me? Father, we come before you today recognizing that your word is sacred. Lord, recognizing that you continue to speak to us today through it. Lord, we thank you that you are, in fact, the one who has designed life. And so you know what's best. Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear your word and to put it into practice today. Lord, whether we have been around Christian things for a long time or whether these things are new to us, we pray that you would help us to listen to your voice speaking to us today through it. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, we've been in the book of Luke, and Jesus has been teaching on the kingdom and being ready for its inauguration when the judgment comes. And he's encouraging people, he's imploring them to be ready for heaven, to be set for heaven, to make sure that they are found there. We're in chapter 13, and he's been doing this ever since chapter 11. And he's been talking about how the kingdom is now and not yet, but that one day it will be now and forever after. He's been speaking about how some will find favor and entrance into the kingdom, and others will be cast out away from the kingdom. And we read this in our passage. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Now, in first century Israel, there were many different understandings on who would be saved. Many questions about this. Would it only be the ethnic Jews who would be saved? Would it only be the very religious, like the Pharisees who stood up and taught? Would it only be those who appeared to be abundantly blessed by God already here on this earth, those who had wealth and prestige? They're asking, are, are only a few people going to be saved? But Jesus turns the question round on them. And in effect, his answer is this. The more important question is whether or not you will be saved. Get that settled first, and then we can discuss the salvation of others. Jesus says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. One of the first things we're going to see in our passage this morning is the, the condition the conditions of entering the kingdom, the conditions of the kingdom. So Jesus has said, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Let's pull that apart a little bit. What, what is the primary meaning of the narrow door that Jesus is talking about? Well, he's made it pretty clear throughout the rest of the Gospels that he himself is the gate. He himself is the door. He himself is the way to get to heaven to come back into relationship with God the Father. Jesus said, I 
am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Just a couple weeks ago, as Andy was preaching, he talked about how Jesus said that his words would cause a division between people because the things that he said are very, uh, they're very clear, and at the same time, they are sometimes offensive to people. How can you say that you are the only way, Jesus? You know, Acts 4.12 also says, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Jesus has made it clear that he is the way back to the Father. Not Allah, not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Mirza Ahmad, or the pantheon of pagan or Hindu gods. Not self-realization, not rigorous law-keeping or trying to earn our way by good works. Jesus came preaching a message of repentance and belief. Our salvation is by grace from him alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. One of my absolute favorite hymns is the hymn Rock of Ages, and one of its verses says this, Not the labors of my hands could fulfill your lost commands. Could my zeal, no respite, no, could my tears forever flow. All for sin could not atone. You must save, and you alone. So Jesus is preaching repentance and faith, belief. What is biblical belief in Jesus? See, the Bible paints a picture that belief is not merely a mental acknowledgement of something. It's much more than that. It's a belief that is acted upon. Two different word pictures might be helpful. They've been helpful to me over many years. The first one is this. If I were walking down a path and it happened to be train tracks, and I believed that a train was coming, I would find a different path. Because if I honestly believed that a train was coming down those tracks, I would not want to be found there when that train came. Or maybe another picture is, sorry, let me back up. So that turning, that getting off the path that I'm on and taking a different path, turning back to God is what Christ meant by repentance turning from the way that we are going and coming back to God. Another helpful word picture might be this, and I'll lift this up so you can see it. It is a chair. Now, I fully believe that this chair can hold my weight, that I can sit in it, and it won't be a problem. I can believe that mentally, but my faith is put into action when I actually come over and sit in the chair. And so that's what belief is like. Belief in Jesus is believing into or onto him. If I never exercise my faith in that chair, is it faith at all? Or is it simply a mental acknowledgement? We see this in trusting Christ's work alone. And in this case, it means only trusting in the work that Jesus did in his life, his death, and resurrection, not our own good works or efforts. He is the narrow door. We must come to him on his terms, repentance and belief. We don't determine what God requires. He does. So in that sense, his way is narrow. It's not open to all of our best guesses or opinions or even the depth of our sincerity. 
Jesus has said, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. We could be tempted to think, how ridiculous, how unfair that God would only set up one way to be saved. Friends, let me remind you, we need to marvel that God has opened a way for us at all. We are a rebellious creation. We have basically said to God, shove off. We want nothing to do with you. He would have every right to leave us in that place, and yet he has made a way because of his great love for his creation to come back to him, to enjoy fellowship with him, relationship with him, and to enjoy life eternally with him. God is not beholden to us. He doesn't owe us anything, but he has opened a way for us. It's not based on our works. In fact, Jesus once answered a question by saying, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So entering through the narrow gate is placing our faith in Christ. Part of that also means forsaking our sins and ungodly desires. A theologian called F.B. Meyer adds that the door was, quote, so narrow that there is no room to carry through it the love of self, the greed of gain, the thirst for the applause, and rewards of the world. Now, I'm, I'm really big on word pictures, and so this next one has been helpful to me as well. Again, maybe it'll be helpful to you. Us trying to come through the narrow door and yet doing it on our terms is a bit like a dog who wants to come into a narrow door with a stick. And he's thinking, Master, I like this stick. I want this stick with me everywhere I go. I, I found it in some lovely filth outside, and I just love this stick. I want to hang on to this stick because I may never find something that gives me as much happiness as this stick. But the stick has no place in the master's house. The same is true with our sins and pride that we like to hang on to because we think that they're not a big deal or that they bring us comfort. We sometimes think, well, yes, I, I know that this isn't really something that pleases God, but I'll give God the rest of my life and not that thing. Greed, lust, intoxications, gossip, selfishness, idolatry, unjustified anger, sexual immorality, hatred, unforgiveness, an entitlement mindset that says we should get to live life however we want to, our pride, all these things the scriptures remind us we need to put to death. To use the example of a dog with a stick, we need to leave it. We need to drop it and simply come to Jesus, not trying to bring anything with us, sin or our own good works, but just leaving it there and entering through the way that he has provided. We need to let go of everything that would hinder us from entering the kingdom and come simply trusting Christ. The Apostle Paul, later on uh, in the Scripture, says, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, garbage, dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. That is the narrow door, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. 
Jesus' teaching on salvation is not the wide or frivolous way that sometimes is bandied about in our culture. Faith in Christ is seeing him as Savior and Lord, and it does affect every area of our lives. It calls for self-denial. It calls for us to love Jesus more than the things of this world, more than our own possessions. It calls us to take up our cross daily and identify with him. It is a narrow door that is entered only by grace through faith in Christ alone. Now, certainly, we all still struggle with sin. And what God is talking to us about here is not that we have to fully cleanse ourselves or try to fully cleanse ourselves before we can come to him. Jesus is the one who cleanses us. But God does say that we cannot downplay sin or hang on to it willingly because we enjoy it thinking that there's comfort or pleasure in it, it has no place in our master's house. And as we struggle along, God has graciously given us the church to help us wrestle against these things and to help drop them along the journey. He has not made this a journey for us to try and strive through on our own. So what is this striving that he's talking about then to enter the kingdom? We often say that salvation is a free gift of grace, and it is true and biblical, not by our works or our striving, yet here, Jesus uses the word that means to agonize. So what does he mean? He says, we come, we, uh, he says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, to strive, to push. What is he talking about striving against? He's talking about striving against the allures and pains of the world. He's not speaking of a salvation based on our effort, but acknowledging that much will try to sway us and pull us away from him, that will try to deviate our eyes from the narrow door and pull us off to something else, whether those things be um, sin and pleasure that we think will be more fulfilling than him, or whether they may be things that we see as pains in this life and say, you know what, it's just not worth it. Our faith is a costly faith. The Bible clearly lays out that it's a gift from God, but it's one to be used and exercised, and that there will be difficulties along the way. Our faith is never portrayed merely as a ticket to get into heaven that we stick in our back pocket until the time comes to show it at the pearly gates. We have peace and assurance in this life, yes, but it does not mean that our struggles end. Jesus told us that hearing the gospel or even just acknowledging its truth is not what genuine belief entails. He spoke of a parable where he talked about the good news, the way of salvation, being like seed that was scattered on different paths. He said that in the, in the first example, the devil comes along like a bird and takes away the word from hearts. That's one more reason to hate pigeons. Um, takes away the word from their hearts so that they would not believe and be saved. He said other people are like rocky soil where the, at first when they hear the good news, they are joyful and there begins to be this, this spark of interest or growth, but there's no root. They believe for a while, but in time, when testing comes along, they fall away. The third type of soil he talked about was a, a soil filled with thorns that when people hear his word, they go on their way, but the word is choked out by life's worries and riches and pleasures. And so those people don't mature. But what Christ said would be good soil for the word are those who hear it 
retain it, and he says, by persevering, produce a crop, striving towards the narrow gate, striving to push past the allures of this world, the pains and the hardship, and focus our eyes on him and the way that he's made. And sometimes we think, well, well, isn't it, why isn't it just enough to believe mentally without putting it into action? Jesus said, even the demons believe and tremble. So maybe the better way to think of it in terms of striving, this, this Greek word agonazimai, is it's an ongoing struggle that we have against the allures of the world throughout the rest of our lives. And Jesus is telling us, when it comes to salvation, go for broke. Go all out. Leave everything on the pitch. Put all your eggs in one basket. Whatever idiom you want to use, make sure that you are heading towards the door. Make sure that you have come through the door. We will continually need to renounce, reject the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil while they try to lure us away from him. And again, please remember, brothers and sisters, God has given us his indwelling spirit and our church family to help us wrestle in this process. He does not ask us to do this alone. So if there's an area of sin that you struggle with, find a trustworthy person in the church and say, I need help. Will you help me struggle along in this to say no to the things that would pull me away from Christ and to continue to keep my eyes fixed on him? We come back real quickly to the emergency escape sign. If my house were on fire and there was one sure way of getting out, I would not be concerned with anything other than making sure that my family and myself got through that opening. None of my possessions would even be a consideration. I would simply make my way to that door. I would make every effort to get through that door. Next, we come to <clears throat> the urgency or the, the call of come now into the kingdom. Our Lord warns us against delaying to enter through the narrow door because once it is shut, there is not another opportunity to come through. He goes on in the end of verse 24 and says, Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. Is Jesus saying some people will want to come in but won't be strong enough to enter or that he lacks the compassion to bring them inside? No. Commentators, Bible commentators, say that the punctuation that we have in our current translation is not all as helpful as it should be and that it would better be understood this way from the original Greek. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door because I tell you, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, many will try to enter and will not be able to and will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. He's telling us that there will come a time when it is too late to enter. And that's why we must recognize with urgency the need to come through the door to be saved. As Connor so rightly reminded us last Sunday, no one is guaranteed tomorrow. Back in 2017, I had uh, an emergency heart health scare that required me to be taken by ambulance to hospital 
to determine if I was having a heart attack and if my life was at risk. During the ride there with the sirens screaming and the EMTs with somber faces checking my vital signs, I kept wondering and praying, is this it? Is, is this my last day? Am I, am I about to meet you, Lord? Was this morning the last time I will have talked with my kids? Will my wife be okay? Is, is this my last day? Well, it turns out it wasn't my last day, and I'm incredibly grateful for the time that God has continued to give me. But how tragic is it for us to turn on the news, even this morning, if you've checked the news, and see the name of a prominent celebrity who died yesterday that no one would have thought was going to. We've read over this past year of athletes and teenagers whose lives ended with no notice or warning, no extended time to consider the things of heaven. Every day that passes, friends, is one more day of God's patience, his compassion, and his mercy. 2 Peter 3.9 reminds us, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some consider slowness, but he's patient toward you not desiring that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In the same passage, Peter reminds his readers of how God once judged the whole earth with a flood and will once again judge the entire earth. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 17, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. He's speaking of his return. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. As soon as the door to the ark was shut by the hand of God, those outside were not saved. But he will answer. This is, this is the master of the house, is those who are knocking, saying, please let us in, please let us in. He will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. And they will say, we ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. What does this mean? I mean, surely the Father is all-knowing, the master of the house. How can he not know who these people are? Basically, those who are left outside have said, but we hung around your people. We hung around the church. We heard great, even inspiring messages on loving neighbors as self, on turning the other cheek. I'm looking out for widows and orphans in their plight. We heard that you have an indescribable love toward us. We sang the songs. We got in the queue and took communion. We tried to do more good than bad. Verse 27. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. And that word translated into English as evildoers carries the sense of a hypocrite. You say you're my followers. You don't do what I say. You've spent no time trying to get to know me. You don't really care for the things that are on my heart or my ways. Yes, you've been around all these things of me, but you still want to rule your own life. You still want to make your own way and not come through the narrow door. You want to trust in yourself for salvation. What about you? Have you turned from sin? Have you placed your trust in Christ, asked him to cleanse you, invited him as master to take up residence in your heart and your life? Jesus goes on and says, there will be weeping there 
a gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. Jesus is describing this most painful type of regret, telling them that not only will they be excluded from the joyful celebration that is going to last for eternity in the kingdom come, but that they will see it and be unable to join in. Now, if somebody told you about a great party they went to, you had been invited to but didn't go to, you might think, oh, man, I wish I would have been there. But what if you were excluded from the party because of your own decision but were given a front row seat to see everything you were missing, knowing you had refused the invitation and that you were separated to a place of agony for eternity? How deep would your regret be then? Hell is a conscious place devoid of the glory, beauty, blessing, and presence of God. And such a place can only be agony, whether the flames are literal or not. Jesus describes a heart-rending weeping, a grinding of teeth, because those cast out will see the great fulfillment of the kingdom of God, but be excluded from it, because they sought their own form of religion, They declined God's free gift. They sought to please themselves rather than submit to Christ. Friends, Jesus has made a way for us to be with him in this amazing celebration. And we should marvel that a door has been opened to us, his rebellious creation. Listen to what he says about this feast in verse 29. People will come from east and west, north and south, and will take their places in the feast of the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. Jesus goes on to reveal that the kingdom he is ushering in will be for all the world, for all people groups. In effect, he says to a crowd who were relying on their ethnic ancestry, the kingdom is going to include all the people groups groups of the earth joined together in festive celebration. And that there will be some surprises for us in heaven. Some people that we assumed would be there may not have had a genuine saving faith. They may have just been playing the part. And there may be those that we see in heaven that we consider to be be beyond God's saving grace who will be there because they did say yes to Jesus before they passed on. And perhaps some who are highly esteemed here in this life may hold a much more humble status there. Well, we've looked at the conditions of the kingdom that that we are to contend for, to strive for the kingdom. Jesus' plea to come now to the kingdom. Let's look at the compassion of the king of this kingdom. Verse 31, at that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Not all the Pharisees were opposed to Jesus, and this lot showed their respect for him by warning him to leave, lest he should be killed. Jesus replies, go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and heading, excuse me, and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jesus essentially tells them that Herod has no power over him. By calling him a fox, he recognizes that Herod is both cunning and weak. And since moving to London, I've come to understand that foxes love to play in rubbish and make a giant mess of things. He's calling him a fox because he's recognizing Herod is cunning 
but he is weak. Jesus wasn't afraid of Herod, and he wanted him to know it. Jesus says he will continue on with his mission exactly as it is planned, bringing healing and casting out demons, and that on the third day he will reach his goal. He's speaking of the time when he will die for the sins of the world and on the third day be raised again. And then hear his heart in verse 34. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. and You were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus knows he will be rejected by his creation and by his own people and foretells of a time when they will be utterly desolated. Yet his heart is always to bring them to himself, to care for them, to watch over them, to protect them, to forgive them, to have a relationship like the intimacy of a mother protecting her young. It's an image that God the Father used of himself many times in the Old Testament. I hope you see and hear the compassionate heart of Christ. His creation rejects him, yet he's saying, come to me so that I can cover you, that I can forgive you, that we can be restored in relationship together. And he did this by making a way through his life, death, and resurrection so that we could be restored and know unending joy and delight with him in eternity. Not sitting on fluffy, fluffy clouds playing little harps, as the caricatures show, but enjoying a true celebration for eternity. Jesus says of those in his day that they were unwilling. They didn't want to have that with him. What about you and I? He still stands as the narrow door, an open invitation for any who would repent and believe on him. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not desiring that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus has made it clear the only way for us to come into his kingdom to be restored to the Father is through the narrow door of himself. We must push away the allures and distractions of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Come to him, trusting him as Savior, recognizing him as Lord, sharing in relationship with him to joyfully celebrate and feast with him forever. Will you drop the worthless stick of your sins, of your own efforts, and enter your master's house? Have you accepted his invitation, turning from your sin and self and trusting him alone? Come through the narrow door today. Don't delay any longer. Every day that passes is one more day of God's patience, compassion, and mercy. Let's pray. Lord, we hear your words. We understand that you've said that the only way back to the Father, back to heaven, is through you. Lord, you've asked us to simply trust in you, 
to turn from our own way of living and turn back to you and to believe that everything that you've done will pay for our sins, will cleanse our debt. Lord, help us to understand this better. Help us to wrestle with this truth. Lord, for those here who haven't yet come through the door, I pray that you would continue to be working on their hearts, speaking to them and reminding them of this incredibly generous offer based out of your love. And Lord, for those of us who have walked through that door, help us to remember that this urgency is for all the world, that you don't call us to come in and simply check out of life, but that you call us to be involved and urgently sharing, Lord, this joyful news. Lord, continue to strengthen and direct us. Guide us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.